We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. So as my friend and I were walking through this massive structure in South Lake, Texas, we were kind of overwhelmed at the beauty and the grandiosity of this church building. You know, it's Texas, everything goes big there, right? We had gone to go visit a friend of ours who was now the men's ministry pastor of a mega church there. And he was running a men's conference when we happened to be coming into town. And so we were going to that men's conference to get some time with him. And let me tell you, when we first walked in and we got the swag bag that everyone got, and it was full of like Blu-ray discs and all kinds of Sony stuff, we were like, what in the world? The bag said Sony on it. Turns out, when you buy directly from Sony three massive screens for your auditorium that each are valued at a little over a million dollars, Sony has no problem keeping you happy by sponsoring your men's conference. Uh, it was quite the spectacle. We had great barbecue when we came in because all like the award-winning barbecue joints around them in Texas had showed up and it was like all you can eat ribs and brisket. There was a car show. One of the events was this massive catapult system where you could just launch things into their football field-sized lawn. Uh, There was a motorcycle at one point, like a really tricked-out Harley that rode up on the stage. I don't remember why, but you know, it's a men's conference, right? And so all that was going on. We had full access to the cafe in there. All we had to do was give them our friend's code because he was a pastor on staff. We tried not to take too much advantage of that, but all the coffee and treats and stuff like that we could ask for. And then we got a tour of the building. And as we were walking through the kids' building, they had their own building, ministry section, there was literally a roller coaster going through the walls of the classrooms. And we're walking through, and my friend looks at me, he goes, smacks me in his arm, isn't this a great church? I almost want to move here to be a part of it. And I was like, bro, you know nothing about this church. Like, you don't know anything about what they teach. We didn't hear a whole lot of Jesus during the men's conference. Heard a whole lot of like Proverbs and this is how you grow your business. Uh, You don't know what the community's like. You don't know how they engage with the neighborhood and city around them. You're not commenting on the church. This is a great building though. Like, I'm not gonna lie. This is a great building, right? There's a different set of eyes going into that moment. And what happens for Paul when he's in Athens in Greece, it's a great city. The architecture is amazing. The statues of marble are profound. The beauty of the art, the poetry, the philosophy, there's some great, and by great, I mean big, like Texas big things going on, right? But Paul goes in with a different set of eyes that he's not so much seeing everything they have that would have drawn people to the city as it did. He sees what's missing. And he addresses that. Now, before we get into how Paul addresses that, let's back up a little bit because we did jump in halfway through the story, right? Verse 16 said, while Paul was waiting for them, waiting for who, right, in Athens. And so what happened is Paul and his crew, Silas, Luke, like, Timothy, all their friends who were going around sharing the good news of Jesus, they took a trip intentionally to a city called Thessalonica, also a Greek city. Now, if you've uh, been with Missio for a little bit, you know about a year, year and a half ago or so, 
maybe it was two years. I don't know. The last three years are a total blur to me. But we went through the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And so we hear this letter that Paul writes to a growing, flourishing community of Jesus-believing followers in Thessalonica. What's interesting about that is Paul and his friends only got three days with them before the Jewish leaders stirred up a riot and drove them out of town. So that's how Acts 17 starts. Three days in Thessalonica, sharing about Jesus. Some people, a like small ragtag group of people, believe the message. And then they're driven out of the city with a riot. But from that, God planted a seed and the church begins to grow. So they go from Thessalonica, they're, they're pushed out of town, and they go to this place called Berea. Have you guys ever heard of the Bereans before? Okay, so this is, this is kind of where they, the Berean, this organization or, or group of the church that exists now that will put Bibles in your hotel room, right? This is kind of where they get their name from, is the Bereans in this time, uh, when Paul and Silas and they, all of their friends, they go into the Jewish synagogue first, that's where they would start their message, and they start speaking about Jesus. This time it's received with curiosity and some humility. That instead of getting angry and driving them out of town, they actually go, hmm, let's, let's examine this. Let's see if what they're saying has any validity to it. And so they go to their scriptures. So they start pulling out scrolls in the temple and they're reading through and they're going, do we see this lining up with what they are saying to us right now? And just a little side mini sermon message to you right now. I hope that's what you're doing every time myself or Anthony or anybody else gets up here too. Go to the scriptures and check what we're saying, right? So that's what the Bereans do. And they go, wait a second, they're, they're right. This is all pointing to this Jesus they're telling us about. We see it here in the scriptures. That's what Jesus said of himself, right? That all of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament scriptures they had were pointing to him. And that he didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's the culmination of it all. And they see it when they actually look for themselves into the scriptures. But the religious leaders in Thessalonica, they catch word of this. They hear, oh, those guys, those troublemakers are in Berea now, and they're stirring up that synagogue to follow after this Jesus. So they send a riot to them. They go to Berea and try to stir up a riot there to push them out. So sensing that Paul's in trouble, specifically Paul as one of the main speakers, if you remember earlier in Acts, uh, when he and Barnabas were mistaken for Greek gods, Barnabas, the silent guy probably, was mistaken for Zeus, and Paul was mistaken for Hermes. And so he seems to be their main speaker. So they're like, this dude's going to be in some trouble. He's not safe here. Plus, you know, Timothy was partially Greek, like he could hang with some of the crew there and find some shelter. So they were going to be okay. They send Paul away, though. Paul, it's not safe. Get out of here. And so most likely, this is around the time when Paul wrote that letter to the church in Thessalonica, because Timothy and Silas are able to go back and check on them and see what's going on. And he sends them, he tells us in that letter, to go check on them. And he hears a good word that there's a growing church. So even through that persecution, through that trouble, God is still faithful to do what he's doing, to build his kingdom. But Paul, he goes, he flees. He's trying to get away from this. And he's wandering alone in this great city of Athens. Now, this is what's fascinating to me is this wasn't an intentional mission trip. 
This was a let me get away so I don't get my head cut off moment. And yet, he entered into it with a lot of intentionality. It may not have been intentional on his part to get there, but it was very intentional on the part of the Spirit of God to send him there. And sometimes that happens for us, right? Sometimes we find ourselves in certain places that it wasn't our plan. Like, how did we get here? And yet God's doing something through that. Years ago, when we were doing a ministry called Apartment Life, Bethany and I were just building community, living in an apartment property, trying to connect neighbors with one another, right? And trying to build relationship. And we would throw events and parties and things like that uh, with the goal too, as we're building relationships with people, they would see our lives and we'd be able to share with them the good news of Jesus. And oftentimes we, we talked about this, we discovered this, and we had to remind ourselves this, that oftentimes the actual ministry, the actual moments where you get to share something of worth and value happen in the interruptions of our day specifically when we were living next to an older lady. And every time I would walk out to my car to go somewhere, she was, it's like she heard our door open and she came out and wanted to come have a conversation with us. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I have to go. You don't know what time it is right now. You don't know what schedule I got to keep. I can't do this with you. And yet that's when God was opening up her to hear conversations of good news. And we got to have many of those. Bethany more so with her than me. She was much better at listening to the interruptions and being intentional with them. Paul's here as an interruption in his life in this city. It wasn't the plan for him to be running, fearing for his life and separate from all of his friends in a foreign city by himself. And yet, Somehow, by the grace of God, with the the spirit at work within him, he was willing to go into it with some open eyes to see, God, what are you doing here? So that's how he's walking around the city. He sees all this stuff going on. He sees the beauty. He sees, he hears the poets, right, in the marketplace. The marketplace wasn't this like, you know, we think about you go to the marketplace to buy things. That happened too. But it was also like you go to exchange ideas, not just exchanging money for produce, but the marketplace became this this part of town. It was like the hub. It was where everyone went. And and we heard, as we read in Acts 17, the Athenian people, all they loved to do was spend their time sharing and hearing new ideas. It was like they were thirsty, right? They were searching for something. And so they just wanted to hear, what's the latest thing out there? And that's why all these philosophers came up from Athens, from Greece, and so they, they're wanting to hear new ideas. They would go to the marketplace and exchange that with the common folk. But then you had this place called the Oropagus. It's a weird word. I don't even know if I'm saying it right, to be honest. But I'll tell you where it comes from. <laughs> so there was a Greek god named Ares. He was the god of war. And the second part of that, so Oropagus, it comes from Ares. And then the second half of that word comes from the Greek word for stone. And this was this place in Athens where they gave it the name of Ares Stone or Ares Rock. And it was a place that was very prominent, but they would also kind of hold court there in a sense. So you have all these different ideas being exchanged in the marketplace, but you had the people who were really kind of like, they're the ones you trust and respect. They were the great philosophers. And even some judges now sitting in this Ares Rock where they would actually determine hey, here's what's true. So they would bring people before the Oropagus and go, hey, here's some new ideas. Like, what do you think? And they would judge on the ideas. 
It wasn't judges in our uh, way we think about it of judging like, hey, you, you broke the law, but it was judging on the ideas and they were really governing the social thought of Greece. Now, by this time Paul gets there, it's actually known as something else because by the time Paul gets there in this Greco-Roman world, Greece is no longer holding power, but Rome is. Now, Rome and Greece are very similar cultures and they even had the same gods, but they had different names for them. And so the Greek god Ares, god over war, in the Roman culture was called Mars. That's where we get the name of our planet from. Uh, And so this became not known as Ares Rock, but Mars Hill. That sounds familiar. That's where that comes from. The Roman god of war. That's where they stood and judged, what do we believe as a society? This is an interesting culture but it's a dominating culture. What was determined there on that rock, on that hill, which by the way is where a lot of like later on, we would find a lot of Greek thinkers, very famous ones, Aristotle, Socrates, Plato. This is where they would have been hanging out and determining things. This is coming from this and it's being sent out to the other cities like Thessalonica, like Berea. And it's shifting the way that their society functions and the way their culture goes. So Paul gets there and he's looking around and he's seeing all these statues of marble to these gods, to Mars or Ares, to Zeus, to Hermes, the ones that they had been confused for earlier. He sees all these everywhere and he sees all these things that they're using to worship multiple gods. You see, there would have been this fear there that if we missed a god, then that God's gonna be angry with us and some part of life's not gonna go well. So we better make sure we cover the whole gamut of life and ascribe a God to every single section of life. There's a God of love and there's a God of growing your crops, right? Every area of life. And so they, this was just, the city was booming with this. And Paul's going around and he sees this and he's not going, man, look at how amazing this place is. In fact, we're told he's very distressed. He's saddened. He's even disturbed. Now there's a difference there between walking into that setting being disgusted and angry with the people and being saddened and distressed with the culture. I want us to hear that. There's a distinction between those two postures. We are in a culture that is worshiping all kinds of other things. And sometimes it's really easy for us to get angry and even disgusted with people until we remind ourselves that these people are made in the image of God and they are lost. They're blinded and they need their eyes open to see better. But instead he goes in with a compassion for the people and yet He is distressed. He is disturbed by what he sees in the culture. I don't want us to lose that either because the other tendency is just to embrace everything then in the name of love, right? And to just say, let's welcome it all, just like the Athenians. It all goes. Everything is fine. That's the other temptation we see happening even within the church these days. But Paul has these eyes that are open, and this is only by the grace of God to see a sadness and a sorrow and a compassion for these people and yet being disturbed by what's happening in the culture. And so in that mode and in that posture, he goes into the temple courts. He goes into the synagogue first, just like they do in every city. 
and he starts preaching there. But he knows, I can't just be speaking to these Jewish people. What's driving this culture is not happening here in the synagogue. And so he also goes into the marketplace. And now he's speaking to two very different groups of people, isn't he? Very different groups of people. Going into the Jewish synagogue, even though that's where most of the oppression came as they were bringing this message of Jesus, it at least would have been a message that would have been more familiar to them, right? Because they were looking for the Messiah, just like the Bereans in the city before. Let's go to these scriptures and find what he's talking about. And they found him. They found it to be true. And so if they're willing to look, Paul can speak their language. He, he knows what they're waiting for, what they're hoping for, what they're longing for, and he can connect Jesus' story into their story if they're willing to hear it. But you go into the marketplace and they have no context for Yahweh, the God of Israel, right? Who is Israel? It's, it's, it's an enslaved people. It's a poor people. What is their God doing for them? That's their thought, right? but we have all these gods and they're taking care of us as long as we take care of them. As long as we're giving and sacrificing to them, they will take care of us. They'll be appeased. And so he comes in with a new idea. And I love this. This is what they say in uh, verse 18. What is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Now that's that's a loose translation in our English right now. You know, what's interesting is the actual thing they say there is what is this seed picker trying to say? And you're like, what in the world does that mean, right? Are they, talk, are they like talking down to him because they think he's like a farmer? I don't know. No, actually what that word is, uh, it's, it's an interesting Greek word, you guys. It's spermalegos, okay? And so sperm means seed. Legos, if you guys know uh, your, your Lego brick toys, it means to collect, right? You collect a lot of different blocks and you build them together. And so that's what that meant was you're collecting seeds. And so it would originally have been used talking about certain birds that would swoop down in the fields and pick their seeds from them. But it later then started to be used for farmers who would go around picking seeds. And then what a lot of uh, theologians think, a lot of historians think, is it became this kind of turn of phrase, this idiom that they would use in their culture to talk about someone who went around cherry picking different ideas and then bringing them together to make up a new way of thought. Now, why are they saying this about Paul? Because you have, it tells us at the beginning of verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were debating with him. Those are very different groups of people. The Epicureans would have been all about pleasure. They would have been all about how do you seek pleasure and material possessions in this life and avoid pain as much as you can where the Stoic philosophers uh, were more about kind of an asceticism in a way. Like we don't think about the material things of this world. We don't think about the physical stuff of our bodies. You actually squash that down if you can. And the more virtuous people didn't live in their body. They lived only in their mind, right? And so if, you, if you're a Stoic, if you know comics, Batman was a Stoic. That's actually how they wrote his character was to not uh, think too much about his grief of losing his parents was to not give in to too much temptation of pleasure so that he could focus on his mission, which his mission was revenge, driven by emotion. But anyway, you know, it's comics. So the Stoics would have been about, you've set all that aside. Those are the lesser things. And virtue is being able to control both pleasure and pain so that they don't master you. 
and, and operate in the mind. So you have two very different schools of thought. And they're both here listening to Paul. Why would they say, listen to this seed picker collecting different things? Because Christianity, following Jesus, has a little bit of both of those, but also says both of those are wrong, right? That God actually created a good world and that the food he gave them from the trees was pleasurable and desirable to eat. He just told them, just don't eat from this one, right? But man, all the good things of the world they were able to enjoy, like that's how the story begins. And that Jesus himself, when he's at his first miracle, when he's at a wedding, is turning water into wine so the party can keep going. Like Christianity is not about stoicism. It's not about pushing pleasure away. God created a good world. Taste and see that the Lord is good. This is the invitation to the God that we have. But at the same time, it is not about fully giving in to all of our desires either, is it? Because it's also a recognition that some of the desires we have, we direct them at the wrong thing. And that leads to death. So in the beginning of the garden, the desire for good food that was pleasing to the eyes and pleasurable to the body and nourishing was directed toward the wrong tree and caused a whole mess. And that story continues all throughout scripture. So Jesus comes and he doesn't come as a stoic, but he actually enjoys, he sits down and eats and feasts with people, right? But he also tells them, go and sin no more. Stop giving in to all these desires that are controlling you because you'll actually find better life, more joy and freedom when you could say no to those things, but direct the longings of your heart to what will truly satisfy you. This is why he came preaching the good news of the kingdom because in the kingdom of God, all of your desires and all of your needs are met. But they hear this and it's a new concept and they're going, hold on, which, which side are you on? Oh, you're a seed picker. You're just taking what you want, right? And so they don't get it. And they say, these are new ideas. What do we do with this? So they bring him to the philosophical courts. Let's go to the Oropagus. Let's go to Mars Hill. Let's find out what the people we trust to direct our society will say about this guy's ideas, right? Now, how does Paul start when he gets the floor? He's standing before their cities and their culture's greatest thinkers. And he's standing before them with a whole new story. Does he enter into it the same way he entered into the synagogue? It's a completely different approach, right? He didn't plan this, remember. God was working through this, but Paul did not plan to go to Athens. And yet he was ready. This is that, you know, when we read that verse about be ready to give an account for the truth that you believe. And we think about like studying apologetics and like being able to argue. And Paul's position here is not to argue, it's to tell them a good story but he does the same thing actually he does in the synagogue just with a different approach. He connects it to their story. See, the difference is they both have different stories. So Paul has to find a way to connect it to each of their stories. But the approach is to listen to their story and invite them into a better story by finding a connection point. What does he do? At one point, he quotes their own philosophers and poets, doesn't he? He says in... Uh, which verse is this? 
verse 28 and 27. Back up. It says that, uh, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Well, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. So he's listened to their poets and he brings in some of their own words to invite them into a better story. Hey, if we have our being in this God, like he created us is what that means. He sustains us. We have life because of him. Does it make sense then that you're worshiping the things that you've created? If we have our being in in a greater power that made us, why do you bow down and worship a thing that you made? Like if, if you follow that logic, right? You're actually giving your power and your position over to a lesser thing instead of recognizing the one who made you. He enters into their story. He connects with a part of their culture, but he uses it to turn their eyes to look upon something better. He starts the whole conversation by not just using some of their poets and quoting them, but by getting to the very heart of the thing that they desire, to the very heart of their worship. Like they are a religious people, he says, right? He gets the floor and he doesn't go, let me tell you why you're all sinners. He goes, hey, let me commend you. I see you're very religious people. I see that you have a need and a desire to worship. That's a good thing. Paul doesn't go in and start tearing down everything that's wrong with their city, right? He doesn't start going, I can't believe you spent all this money on a roller coaster going through your kids' classrooms. He doesn't start there. See, our our approach as missionaries, as people sent to bring good news into a culture is to recognize this tension that one, God did make this world good and every human being is made in his image, which means that there are actually some good things even people who don't know Jesus are putting into the world. To see that and even to celebrate it, to acknowledge it, to commend it. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But to also hold that intention, as, as, he was hold, as we were talking earlier, holding intention, the Epicureans and the Stoics, right? To hold that intention with the reality that at the same time, these people made in the image of God who might do some good also are infected by the rebellion and the curse and that there's bad. There's a a misdirection of what we've been made to do by our creator. And instead we are subverting ourselves and we're giving that over. The thing he's created us to do, we're giving it over to a lesser thing. To see that and weep over that. And to hold that intention. And so Paul doesn't come in just guns blazing, like, you guys are a mess. But he also doesn't come in and go, hey, you guys, like, good job, man. This place is amazing, right? What a great city. I need to move here. He starts with how I can connect with you and what is good. But he then turns their gaze to see where it's failing them and to find something better. I see you're a religious people. In fact, And all these statues you have of all these gods, 
you have this statue to an unknown God. There is something in your hearts, in your souls, in your great philosophical minds that is still calling out saying, we are missing something. I see all you have here, but I also see what you're missing. There's a hole there. There's a need. There's a longing. There's some part of you that knows we didn't get it. We don't have it all right. And let me tell you, that's, that's a good thing. You're on the right track. Do you want to know what that is? Because I know it. I've experienced it. At one point, Paul, he didn't know it, right? And he was on the wrong track. And God had to like show up and smack him in the face. Blind him, literally, before he could see. And he's saying, not out of a place of superiority, or out of a place of, I'm better than you because I know this and you don't, you great philosophical thinkers, I figured it out. That's not his approach. His approach is, I've been introduced to this unknown God. Do you want to know about him? I could share him with you. And he starts telling a story that connects into their story. It's the same story he would have told in the synagogue, but a different approach. We are called, listen to you guys, we are called not just to sit back and wait for God to like maybe through the way that we don't cuss at work or maybe through you know, the music we don't listen to or you know, maybe through the way we're nice to people, like maybe someone will finally get it. You know, we're, we're called to enter into every moment of life with this kind of intentionality, to actually partner with God and knowing and understanding the story of the world that we live in And by that, I mean the true story of the world that God created and the false stories of our culture that we live side by side with. We're called to engage with that, to listen to what's going on around us so that we can connect them to a better story. And so when you go into your workplace, do you know that God God appointed you there, right? And you're like, I don't know, this is just a stopping point. Like, I'm not, I'm not gonna be at this job for long or I don't, it's just to pay my bills. Like, no, no, Paul wasn't planning on being in Athens, but God was doing something. In your neighborhood, in your school, kids, wherever you find yourself in the interruptions of life, I never planned for this to happen to me and here I am. God wants to do something there. And he is calling us, he's inviting us to partner with him in it, to listen to what's going on around us, where people have their aches and their pains and their fears and their hurts, where they have their joys and their celebrations and their loves. Celebrate the good with them and where it's falling apart, give them better news. And that better news is Jesus, you guys. Paul directs them, not just to Yahweh God, but to the one he sent to die and rise again to the newness of life so that not just the Jews, not just the Samaritans, but even the Athenians and even the Phoenicians would come to know better news and live a better story because we would be with Jesus. So the culmination of his whole message, whether in the synagogue or the Oropagus or the marketplace, is Jesus has been resurrected. Why? Because he says elsewhere, hey, if we don't have the resurrection, We should be pitied above everybody else. Like this is the story we have. It's what brings us hope. It's what brings us life. It's what makes good news out of all the bad news that we experience. 
You can have this Epicurean or Stoic philosophy and maybe it does something for you. Maybe it brings you success in this world. But listen, you will die one day. Our hope is there is a resurrection. And Jesus was the first fruits of that. He rose and defeated death. And now we too can walk in that newness of life. And we can experience a glimpse of it here now. And we have the hope that one day we will experience it in fullness. That's his mic drop moment in the Oropagus. And people are like, this dude's nuts. But then there are some other people who go, I don't know. Right? He has the same response to what happened in Thessalonica and Berea. No way. This dude's crazy. And then, you know, I, don't, I, I need to look into this. Let's hear more, Paul. Will you come and talk to us some more? That's a good posture. That's a good response. Not everyone hears it the first time, right? And I think all of us know that of ourselves too. But they're willing to come back and listen. That's what's called a person of peace that you can go and sit with and share more about Jesus. And maybe they'll invite their friends, right? Paul, can you tell them what's more about this? We love hearing new ideas. I'm not sure what I think about this one yet, but I got a cousin, I got a friend who might want to hear this too. Figure it out for themselves. And then there's a small group of people there who believe right then and there. There's a small group of people in that whole city who say, wow, I can see now. I can see what we've been missing, this unknown God. You've shown him to me. And Luke names them at the end of chapter 17. Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Arapagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now, I don't know much about these two people. Nobody really knows much about these two people. But there's a woman there present, which means she probably was of some prominence and maybe wealth in order to be welcomed at the Oropagus and in an Oropagite himself, which means this was a person who held court. He was a judge of some kind in this philosophical court. He was a thinker that other people listened to. He was one who said, this is what truth is, you guys. And he turns and he believes the real truth. Now, again, I don't know what happened after this moment, but Paul leaves. And just like in Thessalonica, where there's a small little group of people, that that seed becomes a community of followers of Jesus. It grows. In the same way, God does that here in Athens. You have someone who is like setting the tone for how people think. And it happens in Paul's hurt, right? It happens in his oppression. It happens when he's on the run for his life. That is often what happens. And we think about just botanically speaking right now in agriculture, when something dies, it drops a seed and it grows something new. And Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection, I think, for a reason. That in his death, we find life. The body of Christ now is global when the body of Christ was walking around as one man when he first came. Think about that. And in the same way, these seeds were just planted there, that through the pain of Paul's life, through the death, so to speak, the newness of life comes for others. Listen, you guys, when we're sent out from this place, we're entering into a city that is very idolatrous but it's also very religious. It's seeking for something. 
And when we go in with good news, sometimes it's gonna feel like a death on our part because it's going to be hard. To hold space between the Epicureans and the Stoics, right? Between the Jews and the Athenians, to hold space wherever we are between people on this side and people on this side. Not in a way that, hey, we're a safe middle ground, guys, come to us. But no, no, we're offering you all a better way altogether. Come follow Jesus and live in his kingdom. There's gonna be some pains in that. It's gonna be hard at times. And yet through the death of Jesus comes the resurrection of all life. May we share in his suffering so that we share in his glory, as Paul writes later, amen? Pray with me. God, we ask for the strength to do that for the power of your spirit. God, give us eyes to see our city differently. Give us hearts to engage with the people differently. Give us minds to understand the story that they live in and to know better the true story, the better story that we have to offer in Jesus. God, as we go to the table right now, as we remember what that cost you, as you went into the ground, but that seed of new life was planted. God, may we go sober-minded to the table, recognizing that cost and that pain, recognizing that we may need to follow you into that in some moments of life. But God, may we, as we leave the table nourished with the bread and the juice, may we also celebrate that what was planted in that grave became a garden of resurrection and that we too will get to share in that resurrection. God, we want other people to share that. We want our friends, our family members, our coworkers, our neighbors to experience that. Help us to share your good story with them. In Jesus' name we pray.